world is a beautiful but challenging place to live. And let's face it, life hits hard sometimes. So if you find your hopes and dreams and mental well-being needs a boost, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Welcome to Inspire Us with your host, Jay Paul Nadeau, a former hostage negotiator turned motivational speaker and best-selling author. And now, here's your host, Jay Paul Nadeau. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 6 of Inspire Us, and I am your host, Paul Nadeau. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing and chatting with a retired FBI agent and fellow retired hostage negotiator, Gary Nesner, who joins me to review his role as one of the hostage negotiators during the 1993 Waco, Texas siege involving David Koresh and members of the Branch Davidians. Let me tell you a little bit about Gary and his outstanding career. Not only is Gary a true gentleman, a kind and wonderful person, Gary served more than 30 years as an agent, and 26 of those years were served as a special agent. In his career, he's investigated and negotiated numerous crisis incidents, such as prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. Imagine a career like that. Gary has made a difference in this world, and he is here to share some information with us and some great tips on how we can treat one another. Not only will he be reviewing that Waco, Texas case, that standoff, uh, that siege, he will be talking about the, the series and a little bit about his book. So now, without any further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you Gary Nesner. Hello, Gary, and welcome. Hi, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's nice to, uh, to hear your voice again. We've known each other for a little while, and it's a pleasure to have you on this show. I want to talk about the Waco incident and your career as an FBI agent. You were an agent for over 30 years, as I understand, and your your career is remarkable. Tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you in the first place to become an FBI agent. Well, just a pretty typical kid. I mean, grew up in Florida and like to share some terrible, tragic story, but I had a great childhood, good parents, and, you know, I have nothing to complain about. I was about eight years old when I saw a TV show that uh, sort of uh, talked about the FBI, and for whatever reason, it, it seemed to uh, resonate with me. And from that point forward, it became a goal. And my mother went out and bought me a kid's book about the FBI. And it just something I always wanted to do. And lo and behold, my, my dream played out eventually and no regrets. Oh, that's amazing. After you had entered the FBI, can you think of anything in particular that motivated you or inspired you to become a hostage negotiator? Well, when I joined the FBI, it, it didn't even exist, the hostage negotiation, that is, only in the mid-70s. I joined the FBI in 72. Negotiations came about in the mid-70s. And in a classroom setting, I heard a briefing on this new concept called hostage negotiations that the FBI had liberally borrowed from New York City Police Department that started it. And it sounded very intriguing to me and something that I felt fit my, my personality and interests. And so I 
got the training as soon as I was able to secure a slot in the training course and was a part-time function for me for many, many years as it was, as it is for most of the FBI's 350 or so negotiators. But ultimately I became one of just a few full-time negotiators and eventually ran the whole program. So, but it more serendipitous than calculated for me. It just, uh, events kind of fall into place as they do for a lot of us in our careers. No, oh, they do. And where those, uh, where those things have brought you, you've had a remarkable uh, career and I've provided your bio to my listeners and it's just remarkable, Gary. The qualities that a, a good hostage negotiator must have, of course, is the ability to communicate well, uh, to listen well, and to uh, understand circumstances and take their time in doing it. I understand, and of course, all my listeners are, are anxious to hear how you became involved in the Waco, Texas, David Koresh tragedy. A lot of my listeners will not know much, if anything. Uh, I, I spoke to a few people and, and said, hey, guess who I'm going to get on my show? And then uh, I said, well, you remember Waco, Texas? And a couple of them went, uh, I think I know a little something about that. So I thought I would let uh, the man who was there, one of the many people who was there and involved in this case to, to tell us what happened. And Gary, you have the floor, please. Tell us how you became involved in that case and what it was all about. Well, when Waco occurred in uh, 1993, uh, started on February 28th, I was at the time one of only two full-time FBI negotiators. I, I took on that position in three years earlier. And our job was to train FBI negotiators from around the country, as well as police officers, both domestically and internationally. So we ran the National Crisis Negotiation Course. We went out on the road and taught schools. We, uh, we also did research you know, on what motivates uh, suicide jumpers, what, uh, how do you deal with a paranoid schizophrenic versus a career criminal. So we did a lot of things like that to try to expand the knowledge base. And our most important function was operational. So when there was a major event, um, my, myself or my partner would go out and manage the FBI negotiation effort. So I'd done that a number of times for some prison riots and some right-wing militia standoffs and so forth. So in February 28th of 1993, another federal agency, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, was attempting to serve an arrest warrant and an arrest and an arrest warrant and a search warrant on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. And there was a cult uh, there led by David Koresh, and you know they had over you know probably 120 or so, 150 followers that lived in this communal building and you know practiced their religion. But part of the their efforts to sustain themselves financially was. Uh, weapons. Uh, they they purchased and illegally modified weapons from semi-automatic automatic to automatic weapons. And this came to the attention of ATF. There were also uh, complaints about child abuse. So there was a lot of different issues. ATF attempted to search, uh, search the place. The Davidians had uh, been forewarned of their coming and a big shootout unfolded between the two sides. And Four ATF agents were killed, 17 wounded, and uh, probably five or six civilians were killed and, and more wounded in the initial shootout. A ceasefire was obtained after some time. And you have to remember at the time, this was the biggest gun battle on US soil since the Civil War. 
literally thousands of rounds of ammunition were exchanged between the two sides to the point where many ran out of ammunition. So once a ceasefire was established, it, it then becomes the FBI's job to investigate any time a federal officer is killed and to manage the incident. The Attorney General of the United States put the FBI in charge. So I flew out that night uh, on a small plane with a couple other FBI leaders to, to take over uh, the management process. And I ended up negotiating directly with David Koresh uh, for some 10 hours that first evening into the next day. Gary, if I, then, if, I could yeah. stop, if I could just stop you there for a minute. Um, so I, I'm, I'm getting the picture of what's happening there. And uh, what's the name of the agency? It's the uh, weapons, uh, what are they called in the United it's States? The, uh, it's the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, ATF. Yeah, ATF. They, they still exist, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah I've, I've heard of them. Um, now, they had received some information that, uh, that David Koresh and the Davidians, uh, the Branch Davidians, had weapons, and um, there was some child abuse within the compound? Yeah, they don't specifically uh, aren't charged with investigating child abuse, but, but that was, um, you know, certainly something on their mind. But, you know, their, their mandate was uh, to enforce federal laws relative to firearms, and... Uh, there was a, a fair amount of uh, reporting about the, the uh, illegal conversion of weapons. Um, a United Postal Service, not a postal service, a parcel service delivery man had made a delivery to the compound and a box fell down in the process and opened up and there were grenades in there. So th there were a number of issues that came to the attention. Neighbors heard, heard loud automatic gunfire late into the evening. So there was you know, a number of reasons that brought them into the investigation. And I'm not um, defending it or, uh, you know, or, or endorsing it either way. It's just the way it was. But once that shootout happened, then we, the FBI, were charged with coming in and resolving it peacefully. Of course. And so you arrived and did you become the primary negotiator and began? Well, to... you know, at that point in time, my role was uh, probably not to negotiate anymore at all, but to run the negotiation team. But before my team arrived there, I ended up relieving some of the uh, people who'd been talking to Koresh uh, earlier in the day before I got there. So they were pretty exhausted. Um, so I ended up speaking to him, as I said, overnight. And then the following day when my team began to show up from different parts of the country that I'd brought in, then again, it becomes their role. My job is then to uh, set the strategy, run the team, brief the on-scene commander and get their authority to move forward on different initiatives. So that's sort of the process we work. People who watch television shows and the movies and even the Waco show I was involved in get the sense there is a single negotiator working when in reality we probably had, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 to 12 negotiators per 12 hour shift. It's quite a complex operation with people gathering information, maintaining situation boards, doing Intel reports, recording negotiations, all sorts of things. And that's something that Hollywood usually doesn't have the time or interest in, in, in showcasing. But those of us who've been involved in negotiations realize that it is very much a team sport. So someone may be the voice of the team at that particular moment, but it's, it's never one person leveraging their skill set against another. It's, it's right. a whole team on our side, right. uh, assessing the calls, making an analysis of who we're dealing with and what their motivation is and devising a strategy that we're all comfortable with to move forward. 
Yes, thank you. I'm a former hostage negotiator and I understand the process, but I appreciate you explaining that uh, to our listeners because it is a team effort. It's not just one individual that uh, brings the outcome the way it goes. So tell us, who was David Koresh? Who were the Branch Davidians? And when you started your negotiation, please tell us what happened. It's a very long story. We don't have the, you know, <laughs> it's hard to put 51 days into uh, the short time that we have. But, you know, the Branch Davidians were uh, a sect of the uh, a larger religious group, the Seventh-day Adventists. And but in this breakaway sect, David Koresh was seen as the prophet, the, the one individual who spoke to God and, or God spoke through Koresh to the others. And the typical sorts of uh, relationships with his followers that you would, you would know from a cult. I mean, that the leader has the ultimate authority over everyone. Everyone uh, gave their money to the communal control of David Koresh. Uh, he had exclusive sex with the women you know, he was the only one allowed to father children, on and on and on and on. So it was, uh, by most people's standards, a, a fairly abusive and controlling situation that's not inherently against the law, but um, certainly very troublesome to most people. But um, that's not why the investigation occurred, but that's what we found we had to deal with. And, uh, you know, David Koresh, uh, basically, and his group, even after the shootout, basically only had one demand, and that was for us to go away and leave them alone. And that was the one thing that we were unable to do. So it put us in a real predicament. How do we convince people to come out that don't need or want anything from us? So it, it was quite a major challenge. And your communication, your negotiation with David Koresh, can you, uh, can you tell us how, how that lasted for several days? I know, but can you tell us about uh, how that turned out? Well, uh, again, my personal contact, uh, my speaking with Koresh was, was you know, fairly confined to that first to two days. But the approach we took was that David Koresh felt very aggrieved. He felt that ATF should not have undertaken the raid the way they did. And it was their fault that the shooting had started. I mean, the television movie that's now on Netflix about Waco that, again, was based in part of my book, portrays ATF as having fired first, but to my knowledge, that's never been established who fired the first shot. Right. But when ATF pulled up in front of the compound, you know, uh, very quickly a firefight of, of enormous level uh, took place. But the approach that I felt we had to take was to distance ourselves, ourselves being the FBI from ATF. We had to convey to Koresh that okay, we don't know what happened here. This all has to be sorted out with a thorough investigation, a, you know, an in-depth examination of who did what, how it started, so forth and so on. And we can only do that with your cooperation. You need to come out peacefully, tell your side of the story, have your day in court. That was what we felt was the best uh, approach to take with them. So that's, that's the strategy we pursued. And how did the other members of the Branch Davidian react to all this? Was, was David Koresh controlling everybody? Did anybody have a say? How did it work out uh, with uh, everybody else involved, the negotiators? Well, I think for the Davidians, there's no question that there was a lot of angst inside. They, they had just been involved in a you know, tremendous gunfight. They had lost some of their fellow members, and some of them were wounded, and they had children in there. And it, it was no doubt a very traumatic experience. But also, they weren't burdened with the uh, the task of having to decide what to do, because that was exclusively up to David Koresh. David told them what to think and what to do, and that 
that was it. We, uh, you know, we dealt with different Davidians during the negotiation process, but we quickly came to realize that only one person made decisions in there, and that was Koresh. So what we started to do is um, we started to slowly pursue a strategy that would deconflict and, and deescalate. I will tell you, over the first half of the incident, the first 26 days that I was there before we leave, we got all 35 people out, including 21 children. No one came out during the second half of the incident uh, after I was replaced. One of the major problems we had was an internal one within the FBI where the tactical leadership uh, wanted to take a much more aggressive approach in dealing with the Davidians, which is, as you know, as a negotiator, is sort of counterproductive to what we're trying to do. We, we always call it the paradox of power. The harder you push, the more likely it is you'll get resistance. And that's, that's what happened. There were occasions where we were making pretty good progress and we would get children released or sometimes adults. And then the tactical team without coordination would do something very provocative on the perimeter that unintentionally perhaps uh, undercut that effort. So we had to dig ourselves out of that hole and get back on track and, and get things negotiated again. So it was very frustrating because this, it clearly contrary to long standing FBI philosophy and approach. And we had quite a significant track record of successful siege management. And I always tell people, it, it's not like we didn't know what to do at Waco. Waco in many respects was a departure from what we had long done successfully. And I think that's what's hard for people to realize. There are things done out there that were not part of the negotiations. For example, the loud music uh, that you may recall was played on the perimeter. That's something we've never taught as negotiators. We know it's uh, counterproductive. If you're trying to develop a relationship of trust and then you, you agitate or uh, you know, screw around with somebody in that manner, that's, that's certainly not relationship building whatsoever. So we had a lot of issues like that that came to play that, that really made it a particularly challenging. And then on top of that, even our internal squabbles, then we had in David Koresh a very, a very challenging, self-serving, narcissistic, manipulative person. He would say he would do one thing and he would do something else. And he would change his mind on this and change his mind on that and agreed to do this. And then he said, no, God told me to wait. You know, so you know, I felt often trapped between two competing entities, a, a fairly troubled perpetrator in Koresh, and then pretty volatile decision-making uh, commander and tactical leader in the FBI. So it was a tough situation in almost any respect. And this is difficult, as you said, when you have these two competing forces working against you. As a hostage negotiator, you want to make a connection. You want to establish a rapport. It's, it's about the trust. It's about the communication. And when you have the tactical unit telling you, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. We're going to use these other tactics. It's almost like torture tactics to play music loudly throughout the night and throughout the day. You have children and, and women in there. And I can only imagine the frustration that all of you FBI negotiators who are the peacekeepers must have been feeling at the time. And then to deal again, to reiterate, to deal with David Koresh, who appears to have been giving his word one minute and then receiving a message saying that, no, he's not going to do it that way. What kind of promises was he making to you, Gary? Well, the, I'll come back to that in just one second. But if I, if I can comment, I, I often... Um, said to people, if I could have gotten my boss, 
and David Koresh to be reasonable on the same day, we could have solved the darn thing, oh, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but the second day, or, or third day, I suppose, March 2nd, David Koresh said if we would allow him to have a national broadcast, he would bring all his people out peacefully. Now, we were very concerned even then, early in the situation with the potential for a mass suicide, as in Jonestown, Guyana. So we said, we can't do that. We can't give you this unfettered access to the airways. But if you'll record a message, we'll listen to it. And if it's not problematic, we will play it nationally if you will include on that message in that tape that you've agreed to peacefully surrender after we've done this. So he did. The tape came out. We listened to it. We sent it to the religious department at uh, Baylor University, a uh, quite renowned religious department in, in Waco, Texas. They didn't see any suicidal references in there. We certainly didn't. So I presented it to the on-scene commander. And of course, his first comment was, what do we get for it, uh, for playing this? And I said, well, first of all, we may get a complete surrender. I can't guarantee it. But I said, the real question is not what we get for it, but it should be, what do we lose by playing it? And, and I prevailed in that argument that we really gave up nothing by doing it. We played the tape, uh, was on the Christian Broadcast Network, Koresh listened to it, and then we were all set up. We'd worked out a very detailed surrender plan with their involvement, their buy-in, their participation. And then right before we were ready to implement it that day, he, uh, God told him not to come out. So it was pretty convenient, I think, and uh, self-serving. I, I think throughout much of the incident, David Koresh had ambivalence. I think part of him was open to coming out and taking his day in court and other parts of him knew that he was facing pretty serious charges and that he didn't want to come out. So his default decision-making was no decision. And that was something not totally unexpected on our part, but very frustrating. Oh, I can imagine. You've described Koresh with various words, again, undecided, but very much in control of the other individuals and in, uh, in control of the entire incident, really, by not cooperating. Well, let me add, you, you have to remember David Koresh was a, a fellow that came from very, very modest means to, you know, that's exaggerating. I mean, he came from a very dysfunctional childhood, had learning disabilities, yet through his attraction to this religion and the Bible, and particularly the troubling book of Revelation within the Bible that talks about the end times and the forces of good against evil, which is the, the primary focus of their religious ideology. He became able to recite almost the entire Bible, and he slowly gained status and sway over all his followers. So he, in essence, was a living God amongst mere mortals. And I mean, nobody did anything without his direction, approval, permission. So he had to give up basically everything to come out. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, that was more than he could do. And Paul, be, before I forget, when we get to it, I've been asked this so many times, wh whose fault was Waco? And there's a lot of people in the United States that are, for whatever reason, are anti-government these days. And they want to quickly believe that the government decided to come in and kill all these people. And that's just ridiculous nonsense. And then there's other people that say, well, they're all a bunch of religious nuts and they got what they deserved. And that's nonsense as well. There were some good people in there. Like most things in life, it's very complicated. It's not black and white. It's gray. It's nuanced. But while I have been a critic of the FBI and fault some of the decision-making of our senior management out there, 
I still believe at the end of the day was Koresh's fault because he and he alone had the power every single day to lead his people out safely, which we urged him to do. And he just always looked at it ultimately from a self-serving point of view. And uh, yeah, so that these were the challenges we faced. Perhaps the most difficult hostage situation I've ever heard about or anybody's ever had to face. And I agree with you there. Yeah, you're, you're dealing with a tactical unit that's not listening uh, to reason. And I will say that because you are establishing a communication. Uh, we all know that time is very important. Let's just take our time. And we have to remember that sometimes bad people do good things and good people do bad things. And we just have to remember that the important thing is to, to try to establish that communication. I'm glad you mentioned time. You know, that's title of my book is stalling for time and yeah uh, and you know i we know as negotiators that typically when we buy time unless somebody's bleeding to death on the front doorstep that tempers cool logic begins to increase uh, emotion is lowered rational thinking increases so time does so many good things for us and and, and that was what's so frustrating because we weren't purposely elongating it but we had the time to develop this relationship and then periodically tactical movement would throw us right back to where we started because it would, well, you're going to believe the nice man on the phone or the guy in the tank that just crushed your brand new car. I mean, you, you see the, the, the inconsistency in the messages and the signal set. And this is the problem when an organization is not working with one another or understand each other's roles in an organization. The, uh, the negotiator's role is to establish that communication and that bond and that trust. And the tactical unit generally will go in when they need to, but not. it doesn't sound like it worked out that way at all. It, it's, it sounds like they got very impatient and didn't allow, as you said, stalling for time uh, to, to work for everybody's welfare. And so well, what happened? There's a bit of a backstory, and I talk about it in my book. Several years before, we had a prison riot in Talladega, Alabama, and uh, it lasted about 10 days, but we negotiated, and ultimately, uh, there were Cuban inmates there that we had dealt with years prior in other prison riots, so they were very uninterested in negotiating earnestly, and they were very demanding. And they got to a point where they were very threatening towards the hostages, and in fact, had we're planning to kill one. So we as negotiators switched gear and set them up for a tactical assault that was very successful. There was a rescue, no shots fired, nobody killed, hostages rescue. And the commander of the hostage rescue team at the time, um, this was his first big incident, but he, he came across as being like <laughs> the tactical messiah. This guy must really know how to do this stuff. <laughs> and, and then a few years later on in he was at Ruby Ridge, which I was not at, and that was another terrible situation, and it got messed up, but there was real no ramifications for that, and he was still in charge uh, when we went to Waco, and it was just the wrong person for the job. He, The FBI, as I said, had created much of the protocols for how we all do this, and and he just uh, felt, well, you know, we're just going to make him do what we want, and and he just threw it all out the window, and, and it, it's not not so much an organizational failure, but it shows you no matter how well you train and prepared you are, a personality here or there that's not on the program can really mess it up. And that's what we had. 
That's a powerful statement right there. That's so true because yesteryear, you know, many years ago, hostage negotiators told people how uh, things were going to work out and that did not work out. That approach of uh, you listen to me and you come out, you do what I say, that changed and evolved into making connections and building bonds and trust. And again, you, you did everything you possibly can, but when you have that one individual that's not playing the game and he's on or she's on your team, something has got to change. What did end up happening? You were there for 26 days, were you? Yeah, I was there exactly halfway through it. And just before I left, some uh, very aggressive tactical actions, uncoordinated, took place in the immediate aftermath of seven adults coming out. It was the biggest single successful day we had. It's seven adults surrendered and optimism could not have been higher. And then without coordination, without any notification whatsoever, the tactical team went forward with uh, armored vehicles and crushed cars. And David Koresh basically says, it's over. No one else is coming out. And no one did. And um, at that point in time, the on-scene commander, uh, who was supportive of me, but he would also, he didn't understand the uh, inconsistency. He supported me and said, go ahead and do what you're doing. And he supported the tactical commander and he never appreciated the inconsistency in the two approaches to make it simple. But there was someone at headquarters that wanted to bring in someone they thought to run the negotiations who would be more sympathetic to a more aggressive approach. And they viewed me as an impediment to that approach. And and it's true, I was. (laughs) I was an impediment to more tactical aggression. So I was removed and I told the boss, I don't think anyone else is coming out. And no one did uh, for the remaining second half of the siege. Ultimately, the FBI, as the story is well known, put tear gas inside the compound, hoping to force the people out. The Davidians started some fires and basically committing suicide. They say the FBI started the fires. That's simply unsupported by the arson investigation. But be that as it may, there's always going to be some that felt the FBI did that, but it's not true. But And that's the tragic story. Now, afterwards, the FBI did, uh, there was a lot of reviews. I testified before Congress several times and uh, both the Senate and the House. And the FBI defended itself publicly, but internally realized what had happened. And the on-scene command and the tactical commander were pretty much encouraged to retire, which they did. Uh, And I ended up getting a promotion. Uh, Three years later, we dealt with another siege in Montana with the Freeman, an anti-government group, lasted 85 days. Um, and this mm. time, the director of the FBI said, Gary, you tell us the way to work it. And we did it that way. And no shots were fired. Everybody came out, worked perfectly right out of the negotiation handbook. And of course, nobody's heard about it because it, <laughs> it didn't end tragically. So, but that's okay. That's what we want. And so that validated what we had done. And, and again, it's not so much that we didn't know what to do at Waco. We knew what to do. We just were impeded by some pretty bad decision-making. Paul, it's like, it's like a military battle where you have superior forces, a better position, better equipment, and you lose the battle because your general just doesn't know what he's doing. You know? And that's kind of what happened to us. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. Because in that other incident that you said that just went unnoticed, and you saved all those individuals, you had a commander there who said, do what you do best. And he let you alone. I'm just going to say, you know, you mentioned it earlier, and I think it bears repeating. In law enforcement, the standard, you know, whether in Canada or the United States, the Western world, we really held to a standard to use no more force than is absolutely necessary. That's what the public expects of us. 
when we take tactical action, use deadly force against someone, we've got to be able to stand up in a court of law and in the court of public opinion and say, these behaviors, these actions, these statements from the perpetrator left us, like any reasonable person, to conclude that we had no other choice but to act. That's the standard we have to meet. We don't shoot somebody or assault because we can or we're tired or we're hungry or we're spending too much money. Waco is costing a million dollars a day back, but that's not the issue. The issue is we have to convince the public that we did what we did. We had no choice. Their behavior, the risk that they posed, made us do what we did. And if it didn't end right, then the public is more likely to support us appreciating why we made that decision. And that didn't happen at Waco, and we're still living with the legacy of that in the FBI. Well, and, and it's a hard legacy to live with. You said it earlier, Gary, you said what you give is what you get. So if you treat somebody with dignity and respect, you're likely to get that dignity and respect back or some co cooperation. And you're absolutely right. It is the same in the United States as it is in Canada, is that we can use no more force than is reasonably necessary. We are there to serve the public. And at the end of the day, if deadly force is used, it must be justified for having been used. So I understand. I'm imagining for a moment what it must have been for you, uh, how you must have felt after those 26 days of doing your very best and then standing there to your supervisor and saying, wrong decision here. Tactical is, it, it, this is not the right decision. And then being removed from it, it must have been a very sad moment for you. Can you explain how you felt back then? I know how I would have felt. Yeah, well, in those days, and to this day, as far as I know, the FBI had a protocol of rotating negotiators out to every three weeks so they don't get mental fatigue. So this was now five weeks, and the whole team had been rotated out except for me as the team leader. And so it was logical for me to go get some mental health rest. But I know that was an excuse used when the real reason was, you know, they wanted to take a harder tact. But I think probably the only reason I never had significant mental health trauma from this was the fact that I did tell the boss these things. You know, I didn't say, I wish I had spoken up. I did tell him, I said, boss, don't do this. This, <laughs> you know, this doesn't work. This is counterproductive. I mean, the music is a good example of that. I heard about someone's plan to play loud music. And I, I went to the on-scene commander immediately. I said, boss, we don't do this. And here's why we don't do it. Hmm. We don't teach it. It's not part of our instruction. He assured me it wouldn't happen and happened that night anyway. Mm. Um, it took me three days to get it stopped. And only then, because I had to basically use a back channel into FBI headquarters to say, would you tell this guy to cut that crap out? It's makes us look like we're fools to play music of the Dalai Lama chants. And these boots are made for walking from Nancy. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely insane. And people find that hard to believe, but it, that's how it happened. Yeah. And it tragically, it ended tragically. Fires were set within the compound. And do you know how many, well, uh, I, I would imagine you do, how many people were in there, men, women, and children, and, and what happened? I think um, the day of the fire, which I watched from FBI headquarters uh, in the command center, nine people survived the fire, eight of which I think actually had accelerant on their clothes. Mm. So the working theory being that they were, you know, fire on the starters. Yeah, they were fire starters. And some were prosecuted, and, and that because of the whole way the whole ordeal ended up, there was a lot of problems with the prosecution and so forth. And I wasn't involved in that aspect of it. But I think there was 77, uh, that number strikes me right, who perished, um, you know, many women and children. It was an absolute tragedy. And, and uh, 
you know, and, and while I strongly disagree with the on-scene commander and the tactical commander, I can tell you unequivocally, neither one of them wanted that kind of ending. They just felt, I think, that by asserting more external pressure, they could achieve the surrender we wanted. For you and I as negotiators, that, that seems a, a, a pretty naive and uneducated approach to it. So they looked at it. So they, they were not malicious in saying, we want to hurt people, but that's what happened nonetheless. That was very counterproductive to what the original goal is, is to get out, get everybody out safely, uh, uh, including those who are armed and dangerous. When this all ended for you, there's a lot of, uh, I, I'm sure that some of my listeners are going to be people who are working with uh, crisis and in emergency services who are under a lot of pressure, a lot, you know, especially now with COVID-19. There are even frontline workers out there who are dealing with all kinds of stresses and uh, people who are dealing with things every day. When there's a critical incident, for example, our doctors, our nurses, uh, our police officers, uh, our uh, dispatchers, they, they're all feeling this enormous stress. This incident, wow, uh, this one that lasted so long and one of the biggest firefights, uh, as you said, how did you cope with this, Gary? You strike me as a kind of man who's very sensible and you are a peacekeeper, you are a peacemaker. And to have something like this that you were involved in, which to no fault of your own, but turn out the way that it did with so much loss of life, how did, how did that affect you? Well, it, had, it ended up not immediately, but uh, it ended up having a bigger impact on me than I would have thought. And I mean, I went through a period of, I guess, depression is is the um, perhaps not clinical depression, but I certainly was depressed for a period of time and it took me a while to work out of that. And at the time this happened, the hostage rescue team, the tactical team that was there was stationed at the FBI Academy physically, as was I. And there was a lot of resentment between the tactical and the negotiation people, although I, I've never fully understood that. But so I was sort of the brunt of that. I was almost shunned by the tactical guys early on. And but it has a profound effect on you. You can be right about something and have stood up for that, but it still doesn't insulate you from uh, some of these challenging feelings. And then we had the hearings and the testimonies and the investigation. So this drug out for quite some time. But you know, eventually through talking with uh, good friends, some of whom were at the incident. Um, one of my dear friends is a Canadian psychologist, uh, uh, Mike Webster. And Mike, Mike is... Uh, was so we're back, Gary. I don't know what happened there. There was a technical flaw, and I'm sure it had to do with the internet, but uh, I apologize for that. You were telling us before uh, the cut that dealing inside the office was uh, was difficult because there were people who were looking at you differently, the tactical people. And that can't be easy for anybody who's done the right thing uh, to have to to deal with the people around the office that are kind of shutting him out. Uh, so that was pretty much what was going on, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, don't exactly become uh, a popular. People say, oh, he was right. We should have listened to him. I mean, that's, uh, that's not really a recipe for people uh, who try to defend perhaps in their minds what they did. But I think it's important for anybody that's in a stressful situation that you identify friends and associates that you can feel comfortable speaking with. It's, it's sort of like a form of counseling. Get your feelings out and talk to people and get their inputs. And, you know, the other thing that served me well through not just Waco, but through all of my negotiation career is, you know, a, a variation of the serenity prayer. And it's, and it's in essence to to know the things I can change and to know the things I can't change and to, you know, to be comfortable with the difference and, um, and to understand that. I think 
people can put far too much blame on themselves for things that were out of their control. It's one of the main reasons we operate as a team as negotiators. When uh, something goes wrong, it's not the voice of the team, the primary negotiator's fault, it's the whole team's fault, or the whole team accrues the credit for what we did well. So we rise and fall or fall as, as a team. We don't put the, the burden of everything that happens on the shoulders of one person. Exactly. And, and I think what you, what you said there is uh, very significant for a lot of our listeners who may be going through some difficult times is the importance of reaching out and talking to people during those times who can help you through the difficulties uh, of life. And especially now with uh, everything that's going on, it's so important for us to reach out to people and to share our feelings and our stories with them. And you know, the serenity prayer, as you said, uh, there are certain things that we just cannot control in life. It, things happen and we have to realize that it's okay when things happen, we just have to deal with it and to worry and to spend too much stress to try changing things that, that can't be changed is wasting our energy and, and not good for our mental wellness. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I don't know if negotiations, training and, and involvement brought me to that point in life or just my personality, but I've I've never been one that's uh, fretted over things that, you know, I felt were beyond my control. And um, we all have some anxieties and apprehensions about certain challenging things coming at us in life. But I've always tried not to dwell on that and say, you know, I, I did the best I could and spoke up and tried to make a difference. And I don't live in a world of regrets. Right. And and that's the best way to live. So to all my listeners out there who you're experiencing something very, very difficult in your life that, that you have to deal with, please open up to somebody and talk to somebody and do recognize the fact that there are certain things that you cannot control. But one of the things that you can control is how you respond to what's happening. And you can certainly reach out to, uh, to people who will be empathetic and understand now, the one thing I, I keep telling people, Gary, and I'm sure that you feel the, uh, the same way, is that we are more similar than we are different. The problem is that we don't open up as much as we should to people, people going through our stuff. Things that they're going through, we're going through too. And if we only shared that with people, we can get through those difficult times. There is that wonderful show, that six-part series on Netflix right now. How do you feel about the overall accuracy and the development of the series, Waco? Overall, pretty good. My my book was one of the two books they used to base the series on. The other one was a book written by David Thibodeau, who was one of those nine Davidians who survived on the day of the fire, who wrote a book. And they decided in this production to have a perspective of the inside looking out at the FBI and my book to talk about how the FBI looked inside to the Davidians. And I thought that was a good approach. I thought the uh, producer directors overall did a great job. They captured the, the emotional aspects, uh, the challenges of the incident. I disagreed with them on a few issues, such as the definitive showing of ATF starting the shootout, which may be true. I just don't know. I wasn't there. And I don't know if it's been established who fired first. And as I mentioned previously, the fire um, that clearly was not started by the FBI, and they leave that impression, although they don't say it directly. So, and and finally, I would only say that I think they, in a desire to show Koresh as a charismatic person who drew these people to him, I think they ended up without trying to make him a little too sympathetic of a character. In real life, he was far darker and more sinister and manipulative than I think was depicted. But overall, I think if someone wants to see the drama of the event and, and even the conflict within the FBI about how to manage it, I think it's a, it's a good production. And I, I was happy to be a part of it and to be able to influence 
some of the script writing and what you find out when you sell your book rights, um, you know, you have some measure of influence, but you have no control whatsoever. <laughs> and, and Hollywood has a way of, uh, you know, using dramatic license to make whatever point that feels needs to be made. I understand that's a different business. It's not a documentary. It's a, it's a drama. It was a drama production. So you live with that. It's a great show. And if any of my listeners out there have not watched this show, I encourage you to do that. And uh, before we go, Gary, there are people out there who are struggling with crises that they're going through or things that they see. You've dealt with a lot of people in crisis. You've dealt with a lot of people who were suicidal, a lot of people who were angry. What could you share with our listeners that might help them cope with their stresses? Well, I think you have to realize that what you're going through is not unique to you. You're not the only person that's gone through it. We're social animals and we really depend on each other for a whole range of things, not the least of which is emotional support. So we all have periods of time where we're down and depressed or elated and the whole gamut of human emotion. So in your nose, troubled periods reach out to people and it, it makes a profound a profound difference so what happens when people get depressed as you know they get tunnel vision they see maybe only one outcome and um, they, they, suicide for example is a permanent solution to a temporary problem and get the help you need to work through those issues and people shouldn't have to go through uh, life alone in that regard unfortunately some do but um, when there is help available, seek it out, and it can make a profound difference. You know, when I first got into the business, people used to say, well, they're suicidal. They'll always be suicidal, and we know that's simply not the case. I mean, people go through tough times, and they can be helped, and they may never experience that same suicidal ideology, uh, you know, again, ideation, I should say. So, um, yeah, I mean, that would be the biggest thing I would say, and don't put too much of a burden on your shoulders for life's little foibles. I mean, we all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. That's one of the problems with social media and Hollywood. They sometimes make us all see a level of perfection that in real life doesn't exist. And when we hold ourselves up in comparison, we find ourselves sadly wanting. And that's too harsh a standard to put on our shoulders. We are what we are and there's good and bad in everybody. And we need to, like I said, seek out people who can help you understand that message and, and help you work through problems that are that you're encountering. The other thing I would leave you with is in these troubled times, and I don't think it's quite as bad in Canada, but we certainly have a very acrimonious political climate in the United States now that even affects this, how people look at COVID and do you wear a mask? Is it a denial of your personal freedom? You know, so forth and so on. There's people get very strong views about it one way or another. And what I have found is when you sit down with somebody and talk to them face to face, you're far more likely to listen to their point of view and at least be respectful even if you disagree, then over social media where it becomes so easy to attack and to blame and to name call. And, and that really ends up serving very little purpose. I mean, I, I've seen it myself in my own communications. There's people that have said some things that it's just like, really? I mean, you know, give somebody the benefit of the doubt that they may view life a little bit differently. It doesn't make them right or wrong. It's just they look at things differently and don't turn them into an enemy. Uh, we don't need to demonize people that disagree with us, but it's all too common, particularly in America today in our current political atmosphere. Yeah, th that's a, a tremendous statement as well. Again, uh, yeah, meeting somebody face to face and chatting when you have the ability to respond and listen and truly listen with your soul 
uh, as opposed to being, it's like, uh, you know, being in a car, you know, somebody cuts you off, you're more likely to give them the finger or the fist or whatever, because you, you have that protection of that little bubble, like you can get away. Yeah. And uh, when you're behind the screen of a computer and you lash out at somebody, uh, it's not like you're in their presence. And if only we all learned how to sit together and just chat and again, respect each other's right to have a different opinion than our own and to be open and to really listen. And the problem is, I think a lot of people don't listen. And I really think that most of the world's problems could be solved if we sat face to face and really opened up and allowed the other person to express their opinion. And we treat them with dignity and respect and really listen because we may not always agree with it, but uh, they may have a perspective that we've never seen. And they come from a different background, from you know, whatever's happened to them. That's where they're coming from. We judge too quickly and we point our finger too quickly. And I think I, I wish everyone in the United States, uh, I know there's uh, a lot going on that you all have to deal with. Gary, how would you deal with conflict, face-to-face conflict? Well, I think you know, people want to be listened to. They want to be understood. If you look at some of the recent... Uh, protest marches we've had in the United States over racial injustice and some of the incidents that have occurred, when people take to the street with signs and so forth, there's always going to be some abusers of that, right? Some looters and arsonists and so forth. But most of the people are saying to the rest of the world, we want to be heard. We want to be listened to. We want to be understood. We're upset about what we perceive. So rather than telling them they're wrong or labeling them in some negative fashion that allows you to discount them, work at providing opportunities to hear what they have to say and why they feel that way. And that makes all the difference in the world. Again, people want to be understood. They want to be listened to. They want to be appreciated. They want to be, res- be treated respectfully. And it's a small concession. It's, it's, it's giving away absolutely nothing to be open to listening. And as you and I know as negotiators, uh, listening is not a passive endeavor. We, we call the skills we teach active listening. And that means paraphrasing back what you've heard. You're asking good open-ended questions to elicit more information. You're, if you're in face-to-face, you're making facial gestures and responses and head nods. What you are signaling through a variety of human mechanisms, I'm following along. I'm interested in what you have to say. I may not agree with it, but I want to understand your point of view. And it's perhaps the most powerful tool of social engagement that we know. And far too few people do it. Far too people just merely listen uh, only to find out when they get to speak next. They haven't <laughs> heard what somebody else said. So, I know, yeah. I know. I teach that at my negotiations, uh, you know, business negotiations uh, keynotes is, is the importance of letting the other person sometimes speak first too. And, and the act of listening and uh, the understanding and trying to reach that, uh, that mutual understanding and agreements, you know, that we can all do. And it really is about treating each other the way that we uh, deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And, uh, and, and what you said about um, people need to be seen and they need to be heard. And you've seen that, you know, so many hundreds of times, uh, you know, in your career, uh, thousands of times in your career, where I just want to be heard. And once you hear me, things, you know, I'll, I'll feel better and we can, we can yeah. resolve something. I, I think it's so true in life. And I mean, even as within the FBI as a manager of, of a, a, you know, a team of, of agents, you know, rarely did I have to solve a problem, but you know, if I brought them into my office and there was an issue and I gave them an opportunity to 
I put my phones on hold and I got out from behind my desk and I sat with him. I said, you know, tell me what's going on. I can tell you're upset about something. And once you hear that, you, very often you didn't even have to come up with a solution. You, you just come to the realization that what the person really wanted was to get something off their chest and to tell you that they weren't happy with the decision you made or a choice that came up or an opportunity lost or something completely unrelated to you. But, you know, you don't know till you take the time and listen to them. And, you know, it's, it's just a very, very powerful thing. And, and, you know, we should all learn to do it a lot better. And, uh, you know, we could, we could certainly eliminate a lot of conflict in the world if we did. We certainly could. And that applies uh, husbands and wives and children and employees and bosses. And yeah, everybody wants to be heard. And sometimes it's all it takes is just to say, tell me what's going on. Let's talk this out. And before we go, I want to talk about your book. It is a tremendous read. And I, again, I encourage everybody uh, who is listening here, who wants to know more, who likes Gary's uh, talk. And you can tell he's a, a warm, sincere, tremendous human being. And Gary, I sincerely thank you for being so patient with this uh, disconnection and all that. And it took us a while. Folks, it did take us a little while to get online uh, today because of the uh, computers. And I don't know what was going on. But thank you for being patient. And where can people buy Stalling for Time? Well, they can go and, I mean, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Probably wouldn't find it in your local bookstore, but they can order it for you. But you can get it yourself, you know, again, through through Amazon or or Barnes and Noble or some other book vendors online. And uh, you can uh, you go to my website, uh, www.garynestner.com. There's links to purchase it there too. And there's uh, podcast interviews I've done and articles I've been interviewed in or written and uh, yeah, so forth. So it's uh, the books, um, you know, it, it's not a training manual for negotiators, but in essence, maybe it is. I mean, it, it's about, um, interpersonal communications told through the stories I worked as a negotiator and you know like you I do corporate speaking and if and and the bottom line is if you can resolve a life and death situation through good communication skills then surely you're more likely to get something less dangerous accomplished if you put an effort into speaking the right way with your client or your vendor your subordinate your superior whatever it might be and I think Paul that everything in life is about relationships everything Mm. And if you work at first creating the relationship of trust where you can be genuine and it brings you to a point of being able to influence the other person in a positive way. I don't mean manipulate, I mean influence. And, and that is something that is in everybody's benefit all the time. So work on those relationships and the sale, the agreement, the contract will come will follow and we we tend to to do that in reverse order sometimes and and that can work against us so as Stephen Covey says the business guru first seek to understand and then to be understood so listen create the relationship and influence yes and I'm 100% with you there you read my book and uh, I have a whole section uh, dedicated to relationships and I remember you know, my daughter, when she was, uh, one of my daughters, when she was 12 years old, came to me when she was watching um, Lion King with her other sister. And she came to me and out of the blue, she says, dad, what's the meaning of life? And, yeah. I, and I sat back there, Gary, I sat back there at, you know, for what seemed like an hour, but it was only a minute. But the only thing that came to my mind was relationships. And, you know, and I told her that. And then she looked at me, she nodded and she went back and watched Lion King. 
to this day, I do believe that relationships are what gets us through and that we can create the best relationships if we work together. Yeah, you know, when you're an older person like me, uh, you've been around a while and you made friends in various phases of your life. And some of those are sustaining friends and, and they mean a great deal. But at the end of the day, it's really family and very close friends that are the relationships that count the most and deserve and merit the most time and attention that you put into them. And everything else sort of falls by the wayside in comparison. So that's the things we have to work on. I'm trying now as uh, having seven grandchildren to Ooh. to uh, enhance those relationships. And, um, you know, they're all pretty young. They're all under eight, so eight and under. But um, it's really quite fun. I'm, I'm enjoying so thoroughly now watching the development of the human being, you know. And when my kids were that age, I was probably a little bit too busy doing other things to f- appreciate it the way I do now. Uh, you, yeah, I've seen a couple of your photos there on, on, uh, on social media and you have a close family and uh, I want to thank you, Gary, for coming on and sharing your story and your wisdom and your direction. And folks, again, I encourage you to watch Waco. It is available on Netflix right now and also to purchase Gary's book. There's a lot of wisdom in that book and, and it's an interesting story. Gary, thank you so much for coming on and for being so patient today. My pleasure, Paul, and good luck in in all that you're doing. Thank you, and you as well. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another insightful episode. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave your comments. For more information, check out our website at www.inspireus.ca. Remember, it's not what happens to us that matters most. It's how we respond to what happens to us that does. Stay strong and resilient. 